0: If you have Bibles, um, go ahead and make your way to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, uh, 11 through 22 is where we're going to be this morning. If you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles, uh, Rachel mentioned those a few moments ago, uh, page 976 is where you will find uh, today's text. And if you've been with us, then then you know, we've been this fall in a series that's called Rehearsing the Gospel. Uh, And in this series, we're looking at Uh, Different things that we do together every time that we gather for worship. But we're doing that not just for information's sake. Uh, We're doing that because as worshipers, we are always being formed into the likeness, into the image of whatever it is that we are devoting ourselves to. And so when we gather to worship God, the purpose of that is, of course, to honor and to glorify God in that very moment. That's That's the primary purpose of worship. But what it's also doing is that God is using that to form us into gospel-shaped people with gospel-shaped lives that honor and glorify God, not only in these few precious moments we have on a Sunday together, but really throughout every moment of our lives. And so this series will really be valuable to you. It'll be most valuable to you and to us collectively as a church if it causes us not only to, to be informed about the different elements of liturgy in our service, but if it causes us to reevaluate how we have been formed as followers of Christ and where the truth and where the beauty of the gospel need to do more work and do more transformation, transformative work uh, in our hearts and in our minds. So today we're talking about passing the peace. Passing the peace. Passing the peace is really, in my opinion, uh, an undervalued and underutilized part of what we do every week when we gather together. And maybe this is true for you. For for how many of you uh, was Liberty Church the first place that you ever did something called Passing the Peace? Not too many. Okay. I thought there might have been more. Uh, It was for me. If I asked that question to myself, I would have put my hand up. Before uh, planting Liberty Church, I had never been part of a church family, uh, church community that did Passing the Peace. Uh, The churches that I was part of always had a greeting time. Uh, The greeting time would last probably 20 to 30 seconds. There would almost always be um, a musical kind of interlude playing behind that. And maybe you can relate to this. It always felt oddly similar to walking down the hallway in my high school. So like the cool kids, the in crowd, um, the people that maybe knew each other already, they were like fist bumping, giving each other high fives and secret handshakes, pointing at each other across the room. (laughs) The introverts were kind of fixated on their shoes or decided like this is the moment that I have to read the bulletin not 5 minutes ago not 5 minutes from now this moment or I really have to go to the bathroom that was that's another people would dismiss themselves to go to the bathroom or there's people like me in high school I'm I'm more reserved maybe that's not obvious cuz I'm up here in front often but naturally I'm a very reserved person and so high school I'd walk through the hallways just constantly thinking don't mess it up don't trip don't fall Uh, If a cool kid says hi to you, don't make a big deal of it. Just kind of like nod back like you belong. (laughs) This is kind of what it feels like often, I think, in the greeting time uh, of a church. Passing the peace, though, is supposed to be more than that. And Steve did a great job today. Our liturgists do this almost every single week. They remind us passing the peace is more than a greeting. It's a celebration of the peace that God has made with us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And in celebrating that peace that we have with God, we also then step into the implications, the opportunity to pursue peace, to be at peace with one another. And if you've been at Liberty, if you've been a Christian for a period of time, you might might know and acknowledge those things. And yet, this is true for me, I'm sure it's true for you, we live our lives out of step with those implications all the time. So think about that for just a moment this morning. Where are you actually truly at peace in your life? On the other hand, where is there hostility and a lack of peace in your life? Maybe that's with God. Maybe that's with other people. If I were to say relational strife or relational hostility, who are the people that come to mind for you? And how have you handled that this week? How have you handled that relational strife or hostility? Some of us uh, avoid conflict or we try to create some kind of superficial peace that really isn't peace at all. Others of us, maybe because of our family history or our experiences or our personalities, uh, we just become so comfortable with relational strife and hostility, it becomes so normal, that we just receive it and then turn around and give it away like it's nothing. Sometimes we do that actively, we're actively aggressive. Uh, Sometimes we do that passively, and we're passively aggressive. So we need constantly a recalibration to help us live at peace. And two to three minutes on a Sunday is never going to be sufficient to do that. But if the good news of the gospel, that the work of Christ, through the work of Christ, God has made peace with us, and therefore we can be at peace with one another, if that is what we are truly rehearsing each and every Sunday, then God in his grace will use that to increasingly form us into peacemakers and into people of peace, not only in our families and among our friends and and neighbors and coworkers, but truly people of peace who combat the division and the hostility that is so painfully obvious and evident in the world around us. And Ephesians chapter 2 is a text both about the peace that we have with God through the work of Christ and how we can be at peace with one another. So I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. This is Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Lord God, help us turn our hearts to you and to hear what you will speak this morning. For you truly speak peace to your people through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. As we seek to be formed as people of peace, let's walk through how Ephesians 2 informs our understanding of three things. Peace with God, peace with one another, and peace with the world. Really, peace for the world. So first, let's talk about peace with God. In this letter that Paul is writing to the Ephesians, Paul is writing to primarily a Gentile or non-Jewish audience. Paul himself is a Jewish man Uh, He's a zealous follower of the Old Testament laws that God gave to Moses centuries before. And he's so zealous, in fact, that when this small sect of people emerges claiming that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised one, Paul is actually at the forefront of their persecution, uh, of their imprisonment, and of their murder. But he has this radical conversion experience, this radical transformation. Jesus meets him on the Damascus Road And not only saves Paul, changes Paul's heart, he then commissions Paul to be one who spreads the gospel message, the good news of Jesus, primarily among Gentile or non-Jewish people across the first century Mediterranean world. So Paul is going to talk about both Gentiles and Jews, as you heard in this passage. And the Gentiles are those he calls far off. The Jews he calls those who are near. What does he mean when he says that? Well, the Gentiles were far off in in many different respects. Five things, actually, that verse 12 says about their condition. They're separated from Christ. They're alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. In other words, uh, they are not among the chosen people of God. It says they're strangers to the covenants of promise, so they're not on the receiving end of these covenantal promises that God makes to his people. It says that they are without hope in the world. So they have no hope of changing their position, changing their status left to themselves. And it says that they are without God. Not meaning that they are without religion or without lowercase g gods, because between Roman and Greek influences in Ephesus, they would have plenty of deities to choose from. What Paul is saying there is that they are without the one true God. The Jews, on the other hand, are those who are near And what that means is that when God called Abraham, if you were with us this summer, we looked at the life of Abraham and studied this exact passage. In Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham, and he says uh, that Abraham's family, the Israelites or the Jewish people, they are given this special privilege and this place as the chosen people of God. And so unlike the Gentiles, they are God's people. They aren't strangers to the promises. They are the recipients of the promises. And they're not without God in the world. They have access to the one true God, so they are near They are near. But this is always true of the gospel and it was especially true here. The playing field gets leveled so quickly because it's not just those who are far off who need peace with God. It's also those who are near. And Paul knows this better than anyone because not only is he a Jew, he's a Pharisee. He's that zealous keeper of God's laws. If anyone was near enough to God, it was Paul. And yet, Something had gone terribly wrong for Paul and all of the Israelite people. They had so presumed upon their position as the chosen people of God. They had become so calloused to God himself that they missed the appearance of God in the flesh. They rejected Jesus as the promised Messiah. So whether far off or near... Both Gentiles and Jews are not at peace with God. And here's what we see from Ephesians 2. However wide the gap is between far from God and near from God, the gap between near from God and peace with God is infinitely wider. So for the Jew, for the Gentile, the only way to peace with God is through the reconciliation that is secured by the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The gospel, the good news of the gospel is a great leveler. There are, and I'm sure if we surveyed you in this room, we would hear probably all of them. There are thousands of specific ways to be separated and alienated from God. Gentiles were those separated, generally speaking, by their paganism, their overt rejection of God. They didn't want anything to do with the one true God. They wanted other gods instead. Jews were those separated by their presumption. They presumed upon their position that they had with God. So they might be God's chosen people, but they don't really love and honor God. They just want to enjoy the benefits of being God's people. So it's still a rejection of God. It just might not look like it. And this isn't just an essential clarification for Jews and Gentiles in the first century. We need this clarification today, and we need it over and over again all the time. Because somehow, a lot of people in our day and age and in our culture, both inside the church and outside the church have this idea that Christianity is all about being a good person. And it's just not. It's not that. That is moralism. And it's the exact opposite, actually, of what Paul is explaining in Ephesians 2. That approach to be good enough, to be moral enough, to keep God's laws enough, that's been abolished as the way to experience peace with God. And until you and I together understand that, until we really come to grips with just how significant and necessary the work of Jesus was to secure peace with God, we won't live at peace with one another and we'll be absent or we'll be ineffective peacemakers in the world. And this is why also, sometimes, often, the most moral, the most self-righteous people are the worst peacemakers. If you've ever been part of a church and you've gone like, why is there so much division here? It's because when we adopt moralism as Christianity falsely, this is the only possible outcome. Because in that moment, we've either completely forgotten or we've never come to realize at all our own hostility and our own rejection of God. Moral, self-righteous people have forgotten that in trying to keep the rules, in trying to earn God's favor, they are actually declaring war with God. They're saying, I don't need you, I don't need your grace, I don't need your salvation, at least not really. I can do most of this myself and maybe you just give me a boost the rest of the way. It's a declaration of war with God. People who outright reject God, they understand peace with God much more intuitively. And maybe that's some the story of some of you in the room. They understand it more intuitively because it's so obvious that they either aren't at peace with God or they weren't at peace with God until they trusted in the work of Christ. On the other hand, and this is much more my story, it takes self-disciplined, moral, compliant people a lot longer, if ever, to figure out that they too are at war with God apart from Christ. So whether you are or whether you would describe yourself as a blatantly rebellious person, or you're one who attempts to earn the favor of God by keeping his rules, then recognize today, either for the first time or again, neither of these things bring peace with God. There are thousands of specific ways to be alienated and separated from God. There's one way of reconciliation, and that's Jesus himself as our peace. Second, let's talk about peace with one another. Jews and Gentiles uh, were not just alienated from God. They were alienated from one another. And if you've ever studied the, the history or the context of the New Testament, uh, this stands out almost immediately. A scholar named William Barclay uh, sums it up like this. He says, The Jew had, an immense, had immense contempt for the Gentile. The Gentiles said the Jews, were created by God to be fuel for the fires of hell. God, they said, loves only Israel of all the nations that he made, It was not even lawful to render help to a Gentile mother in her hour of sorest need, for that would simply be to bring another Gentile into the world. Until Christ came, the Gentiles were an object of contempt to the Jews. The barrier between them was an absolute. So here's what happened over centuries. Jews took their their position of privilege as God's people And they warped and they distorted that into superiority rather than service. So when God chose Abraham all the way back in Genesis, he did it with the explicit purpose that through Abraham, all of the people, all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. But the Israelites over time became content to let that blessing terminate on themselves. Not only that, they then erected these huge dividing walls of hostility between themselves and the Gentiles. So these terms that we see in Ephesians 2, the the uncircumcision and the circumcision, those were labels that Jewish people used in a derogatory way. So to import present-day terminology, we might hear a lot in our day about microaggressions and trigger warnings. These aren't microaggressions. They're macroaggressions. It's outright racism and superiority complex on the part of the Jews toward the Gentiles. And so Jesus had a massive amount of transformative work to do in order to bring peace. And that work entailed both destruction and construction. Destruction and construction. The destruction was, Jesus, as Paul says here, abolishing the law as the basis of peace with God and leveling the playing field. The construction is a new temple, as Paul says, with the apostles and prophets as the foundation and Jesus himself as the cornerstone. So through faith in the work of Jesus, every member of this new people is being built together as a dwelling place for God. And why this is such an appropriate and important picture is because the physical temple that was built in Jerusalem itself had become a picture of the dividing walls of hostility between Jew and Gentile. There were these courts, the inner courts, where Jewish men could worship and then Jewish women could worship in a court outside that. And then outside of that, separated by a a one-and-a-half-meter-thick wall of stone was another court where the Gentiles could worship. So there was literally a a one-and-a-half-meter-thick dividing wall of hostility between the Jew and the Gentile. But because Jesus brings peace both to those who are far off and to those who are near, and because he gives his own spirit to those he has reconciled, there's no more barrier. Those dividing walls of hostility have been broken down. And the presence of God is no longer housed in a structure in Jerusalem with these dividing walls between groups of people. The presence of God is now in the people themselves, in the hearts of this one new humanity that has been created by Jesus. And friends, this is the church. Trace this out from what Jesus did. This is the church, a people with a shared identity as citizens of the household of God. A people with a shared access to God by God's own spirit. A people with shared peace through Jesus. So in contrast to so many superficial definitions, the real meaning of peace is this. To to experience peace is to experience the salvation of God and to experience the salvation of God together. That's what peace is according to the word of God. It's what the Hebrew word shalom conveys. It's about experiencing not only the absence of conflict, but the presence of God. It's about experiencing more and more the goodness with which God created the world. It's experiencing more and more the reconciliation that Jesus has purchased. And no place on earth should embody this more or better than the local church. These local expressions of the body of Christ, these outposts of the kingdom of God. The church is meant to be a place in which we experience peace with one another as we embody this peace that God has made with us. And everybody loves that idea in theory. Like, who wouldn't say yes and amen to the church embodying the peace of God as we live out our relationships with one another? We love that idea in theory. In practice, we're not very good at it. Because as soon as we experience conflict, our visceral response is to start dreaming of these hypothetical, easy-to-love people we wish were part of our community and to start despising the flesh-and-blood people who actually are part of our community. German pastor and author who's famous because he was involved in a plot to assassinate Hitler, named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, once said this. He said, He who loves his dream of community more than the Christian community itself Becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. So think about that. It means that if we are more focused either on the nostalgic, and if we're honest, often embellished, a picture of what a church community used to look like. I I had a discussion, I've had several discussions with people over the last six years um, where they've expressed, you know, a sadness and a longing for deeper relationships and community which are great conversations and they're really important. And one of them in particular, um, I don't know if I just had a bad day or just was my sin coming out. It's just a very unsanctified moment for me. Uh, But someone was saying uh, to me, you know, at the church I was at before, we had these great relationships and and community life and friendships. And my kind of like quick response to that was like, well, it couldn't have been that good because you're not there anymore. Um, I don't recommend caring for one another in that way. It's not a strong pastoral moment for me. Um, there is some truth to that, though. We look back on the past with this nostalgia, and we embellish how good it actually was. If we're focused on that, or if we're looking forward to what we hope community looks like in the future, and if in doing those things, uh, we, that outweighs a present love for the real, uh, glorious, yet incredibly flawed people with which we actually are doing life with, and we're actually in community with, then we will be hurting Christian community. That's what Bonhoeffer said. Even though our intentions are good, we will be hurting Christian community rather than actually making peace and building healthy Christian community. So as a church, uh, both here at Liberty and, and collectively as the people of God in this day, we need a renewed vision of what the church really is. If the church is, as Paul is saying here, this new humanity, who fundamentally now have peace with God and therefore can have peace with one another, then the church is the place to pursue this and to experience and to embody that peace. And there is, on the practical level, and I know many of you have experienced this and stepped into this in different ways, there is a real difference between peacekeeping and peacemaking. So keeping peace is just a fancy way to say avoidance. right? Everybody do good, you're doing good over there, you're doing good over there. Great. And if you're like me, if there's simultaneous conflict on like 80 fronts at the same time, or one of them is just super overwhelming, it's easy, it's tempting to settle for peacekeeping rather than peacemaking. But let's learn this. Would you learn this with me this morning? Ephesians 2 should definitively convince us that peacekeeping cannot accomplish anything of real value. Avoidance never brings peace. And Jesus was not a peacekeeper. He was a peacemaker, which meant bringing a battering ram to the dividing walls of hostility, which meant enduring the suffering and shame of the cross. It's the opposite of avoidance. And it's that kind of immersion into the darkness, into conflict that's required to actually make peace with one another. It's this actually, this very peace that we're rehearsing with each, each week when we celebrate passing the peace together. That's meant to form us as those who rejoice in the peace God has made with us and to pursue peace with one another. Is it awkward sometimes? It's absolutely awkward sometimes. I know that, that standing around for two to three minutes for you is like the, the last thing in the world you would ever want to do. But aren't there always awkward moments when you're trying to cultivate real relationships with people? Or when you're at odds with someone and trying to reconcile with someone. Especially in those situations, just being in the room with another person. Or sitting near them or being asked to extend a hand or a hug. That's not just creating awkwardness. That's actually putting a spotlight on the awkwardness that's already there. If we're not willing to step into that awkwardness for those two to three minutes on a Sunday, what, is that, what does that say about what's been formed in us? What does that say about what's being formed in us? Because if we can't do that, we're really going to struggle to embody the peace of God with one another that has been purchased by Jesus. Right, real relationships are awkward, they're uncomfortable, there's these tense moments in them. You wish you had an eject button or a Staples easy button or just any kind of button really that made you get to get out of that situation right away. But if you hit eject enough times, you end up passing on life itself. You end up passing on people. And you become formed into a person that only does relationships when relationships feel good and when you're excited about them and when they're easy. And deep down, I don't think many of us actually want that. We might want that, you know, now in this moment. Deep down, I don't think we actually want relationships like that. If you want relationships like that, you don't need Jesus for that. You don't need the peace of God for that. You can do that all by yourself. It's easy to find people that are just like you, that you get along with, to cast them aside when they're no longer that way. Just don't be surprised when it happens to you on the other side of that. So I invite you this morning, just for a moment, before we move to our last point, just take a second and look around the room this morning. Just take a second, look to your right, left, I know it's harder to like, turn your neck far enough to look backward and forward. but These aren't the people that you hand-selected to be your best friends. They're not. And, and maybe you wouldn't even hang out with any of these people if it weren't for being part of Liberty Church together. That might be true for you. You know what? Praise God because it's something so much better. It's something so much better. You are people that share a common identity with, as sons and daughters of the living God. You, you are a new humanity together, created by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we can be, and may we be, people of peace within the church, making peace with one another because Jesus is our peace. Third, and finally, peace for the world. Peace for the world. Uh, you can turn on the news and in about half a second realize how divided our world is today. Racially, politically, economically, Erected all around us, erected by us, if we're honest, are all kinds of dividing walls of hostility. And we perhaps each have our own individual visions for what the world should look like and how we should handle those political and social issues. But we actually evaluate our lives. We are miserably inconsistent and we're ill-equipped and we're incapable of achieving peace even in our own lives. Even in the tiny subsphere of people and circumstances, you and I actually have some influence and control over. And yet, it's easy to then start to think ourselves qualified to be like peacemakers for the world. This is one more reason that you and I need to be formed in the truth that we rehearse at passing the peace each week. Because when we do that, when we rehearse that, it locates us, first and foremost as those who ourselves were enemies of God and needed peace purchased for us. It reminds us that even when that peace has been purchased for us, that God has secured that, we still are those who create strife and hostility and alienation with other image bearers of God all the time. So the minute that the problem exists solely out there and not simultaneously in here, that our, our crusade, our pursuit for peace, will actually be just creating more hostility. Don't forget the example of the Pharisees. Self righteous morality does not create peace, it crucifies the Prince of Peace. That's where that leads. That's our trajectory of self righteous morality. We are, and we're looking at this throughout the series, we are always being formed. We're always being formed. And if that's not into the gospel of peace, it will be into something else. Subtle as they might seem, blatant as they might seem at times, there are formations happening in our cultural moment that are antithetical to the biblical definition of being at peace with one another. In some cases, that is this superficial peace and avoidance. There are these growing lists of things that we're allowed to talk about, not allowed to talk about, Um, They're, generally speaking, by societal standards, this blanket permission given that whenever you feel offended, uh, whenever you feel unsafe, and the definition of that word has been blown so far open, then that means you can pass. You can pass on having to to do relationships or to do conflict with people. Well-intentioned as that might be, it, it does not go near deep enough. And it actually only serves to isolate and to erect more walls of hostility between people. In other cases, what we see around us today is overt hostility, a complete lack of empathy and compassion. There's a, a resorting to, to mockery or berating or not actually listening to people. And a decade ago, a decade ago, even a couple years ago, I might have said that generally speaking, like the liberal solution was avoidance and the conservative solution was attacking. But today it seems like whether you're liberal or conservative, you go back and forth between passive and aggressive and attacking and avoiding all the time. Maybe, just maybe, we will reach the end of ourselves and realize that none of those things are capable of bringing peace. I would encourage you, I would implore you this morning to not be formed in false narratives of the world. Whether you're more prone to believe the avoidance ones or the attacking ones. What you need, what I need, what every human being that's ever set foot on this earth needs is to be part of this new humanity. To be made fellow citizens, as Paul says, with the saints and members of the household of God. What we need is to be caught up into this great work of God, a work that culminates with people of every tongue and tribe and nation united as a new humanity around the throne of God for all of eternity. That was the only remedy powerful enough for Jews and Gentiles in the first century. It remains the only remedy powerful enough for us today. And this is really the peacemaking role that you and I are given to play in the world. There is no peace, real peace, apart from Jesus. And so we proclaim Jesus as our peace. And this is where we must respectfully and winsomely but disagree with good intention but ultimately misguided movements like, for example, the coexist movement. You can coexist without Jesus. You don't need Jesus to coexist with people. You can can coexist with with lots of people and, and just kind of be nice to people and avoid conflict. There is no peace without Jesus. And so be civil, be empathetic, listen long and walk alongside people that are fellow image bearers of God, walk alongside them with compassion, but never for the sake of keeping a superficial peace that really is no peace. Never pull up short of the actual remedy to hostility between people. At the same time that you're proclaiming this, display this peace of the gospel with your lives. Pursue peace in relationships. Pursue friendships across racial lines, across socioeconomic lines, across ideological lines there are really high and really thick walls of hostility between people in our world. And as those who are at peace with God because of Jesus, we are are the ones that have the only sufficient and genuine foundation for peace in the world. And so who but us is going to tell that? Who but us is going to display that? For the good of others, for the life and the peace of the world, become the kind of peacemaker that our world so desperately needs in this moment. In closing, let me call you to two things. First, recognize again, or maybe for the first time, what has been accomplished by Jesus, that you were an enemy of God until the blood of Jesus purchased peace for you. And if you've never done this, respond to God's offer of peace by trusting in that finished work of Jesus. If you have any desire to experience real peace, real peace in your life, and in your relationships and interactions with others, this is where it resides. Look to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus to secure your peace with God and with one another. And second, celebrate peace where you actually experience it. It's, it's, and maybe this is the case even for you right now. It's often easier to see where we don't have peace where peace is missing, where peace is absent. And that's important to see that. It gives us us a picture of what we need to work toward. But don't miss the great work that God has already accomplished. Any examples of real and deep peace in your life are there because the Spirit of God has done a deep and transformative work in you and in other people. Paul in another letter says, peace is one of the fruit of the Spirit meaning that it it can't exist apart from that deep work of the Spirit of God. So if it's there, if you've tasted of that peace, that is evidence that the Holy Spirit of God has been working and moving in you. So honor that and rejoice in that. See what God has accomplished and let that fuel your continued pursuit of peace. As Paul says, Jesus himself is our peace. There is no other option. There is no other solution for peace. So may we look to Jesus as our peace and may we be people who embody and pursue Jesus' peace with one another and for the sake and good of our world. Amen. Let me pray for us. Jesus, you are our peace and we confess that apart from you, all we do is fuel the hostility and the dividing walls that exist between us and others. When I'm honest, when the men and women in this room are honest, we can look at the history of our lives and see how we've been unhelpful, whether by our, our commissions or our omissions. We've been unhelpful in living at peace. We've settled for superficial understandings of peace and not actually been peacemakers. We've been peacekeepers. Forgive us for that, God. And remind us, even as we come to this table, peace has a cost, and you paid that cost. You bore the weight of that cost on yourself. You made peace by the blood of your cross. And therefore, we can be reconciled to God. We can be at peace with one another. We can actually be heralds, and those who display your peace in this world that so desperately needs us need that needs that. So I pray that this morning you would renew us in the beauty of what you've accomplished, the peace that you have secured, that you would send us out again uh, as peacemakers into this world that you love. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.